Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. The 5 Bytes Podcast is brought to you by ControlUp. Happy users, happy IT, happy bottom line. That's ControlUp. Also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. The biggest story this week, in my opinion, was some pretty major functionality loss for virtual machines in Azure. Maria Sambu was Mr. Onnit. He had a live blog throughout the outage, though it might be a little bit harsh to call it an outage. Operations performed on Windows virtual machines, such as attempting to start a stopped and deallocated virtual machine, would fail, which would be a major problem for those Azure virtual desktop customers who have desktops start up in the morning, like before the workforce needs to log in. So essentially, since that would fail, the machines would not be up, and when users tried to log in and launch their desktops, it would fail. The issue lasted about eight hours and probably screwed some work days in Europe. Hopefully those east had machines up and working, so had limited impact by the time it happened. Those in the US should have been mostly shielded as the problem first occurred in the morning European time. The last status update appeared to point to a required artifact version data could not be queried as the problem, whatever the heck that means. I did read some speculation online, now this was just speculation and rumor I believe, but that perhaps the VM agent was mismatched with the backend, but a full root cause analysis report has not been published yet. I wonder if it will be published, it will be interesting to find out. And may as well stick the AVD related topics together, although the last one didn't just impact AVD. It was virtual machines in general. But still, on a previous episode of the podcast, I shared the announcement of screen capture protection for AVD customers. At the time, it was limited to the Windows clients, but this week, screen capture protection for macOS client was announced, and the screen capture feature is now available in all clouds, including Azure Government and Azure China. And one last AVD announcement, and I assume it was to coincide with the last announcement, but they have just released the latest version of the macOS remote desktop client, which is version 10.7.0, and it's available in the App Store. So still relatively early on after Patch Tuesday. So usually it's a week after Patch Tuesday that a lot of the patch fallout news comes out. But already this week, there were some reports on Bleeping Computer's web form that people have been reporting problems with network printing once again. Peter NM posted that he updated two client computers via Windows Update to KB5006670, and now neither of those computers can print to the print server hosted on a third computer. 
He said it's a bit different than last month's problem as that killed printing when the server was updated, whereas this month it killed printing when the clients were updated. So certainly thread carefully and once again that KB was KB5006670 so if you're patching Windows 10 clients may want to look out for that one and do some testing before you let it pass your pilot group of machines. The Verge reported this week that Microsoft have claimed they were able to mitigate a 2.4 terabyte per second distributed denial of service attack back in August. The attack targeted an Azure customer in Europe and was 140% higher than the highest attack bandwidth volume Microsoft had recorded back in 2020. It also exceeded the peak traffic volume of 2.3 terabytes per second that was directed at AWS last year. Though they noted it was smaller than an attack that was 2.54 terabits per second that Google had to handle back in 2017. Microsoft says the attack lasted more than 10 minutes with short-lived bursts of traffic that peaked at the 2.4 terabits per second, but also at 0.55 terabits per second, and then finally 1.7 terabits per second. So came in waves, I guess, with the first wave or first peak being the highest. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you'll have heard me cover the stories about AWS being hit and about Google being hit and some other significant denial of service attacks over the years too. The Verge reported the number of denial of service attacks has increased in 2021 on Azure. The maximum attack throughput has actually declined though to 625 megabits per second before this rather large attack that occurred in August. But as far as I could tell, Although like the throughput is down on Azure specifically, to me, I'm seeing that the top denial of service attacks of all time have occurred all within the last four years and an increasing number of them is occurring against Azure and I'm sure against other large platforms too. So denial of service attacks continues to be an escalating threat. LeapyComputer.com reported that Apple have silently fixed a gamed zero-day vulnerability with the release of iOS 15.0.2, and it stated that it was a security flaw that could let attackers gain access to sensitive user information. Apple addressed the bug without acknowledging or crediting software developer Dennis Tokarev for his discovery, even though he reported the flaw seven months before the OS update was released. The report suggests that they had said they would report it themselves, this being Apple, but they never did. Bleepy Computer reports that other bounty hunters claim to have had the same experience with Apple, which is a little bit worrying. I mean, you want to keep these people who are disclosing vulnerabilities on your side, and it seems a little bit lacking in fortitude, I want to say, that they would not disclose these vulnerabilities as they've been patched. Maybe I could understand it if it's a vulnerability they've discovered themselves and they want to keep it quiet, but if someone in the public domain who doesn't work for you discovers it, I think the decent thing is to give them the, the kudos they deserve. But sticking with Apple, Apple's Unleashed Keynote will be streamed on Monday the 18th of October 
at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, which should be 6 p.m. BST, 7 p.m. Central European time. And you can stream it via the Apple channel on YouTube, directly on the Apple event website, or via the Apple event app. So obviously, the Apple event held a few weeks ago was on the watch, the iPads, and the iPhones. And this one should be looking at their Mac devices, I assume. So looking forward to hearing about the new MacBook Pros. New graphics cards from AMD were announced in the form of the Radeon RX 6600 line. The cards have been engineered to deliver the best possible 1080p gaming experience. It features RDNA 2 gaming architecture, as found in the PS5, Xbox Series X, and X consoles, 32 megabytes of Infinity Cache, 8 gigs of GDDR6 memory, 28 compute units and ray accelerators, and clock speeds of up to 2044 MHz. ZDNet reports that the cards are available immediately for manufacturers such as ASRock, Asus, Gigabyte, MSI, PowerColor, Sapphire, XFS, and Yestin, with prices starting around $329. The cards will also be available in high-performance pre-built systems from OEMs and systems integrators. And a kind reminder from Ned Pyle on Twitter this week that Windows Server 2012 R2 will be at the end of extended support from October 10th, 2023. So less than two years now. Tick-tock, tick-tock, get moving. ZDNet reported this week that Acer have launched a series of new Chromebooks that are eco-friendly devices and antimicrobial products. The new Acer Aspire Vero laptop has 30% post-consumer recycled plastic. There's also an Aspire Vero trade-in program as well as the business-focused Acer TravelMate Vero. The Acer Aspire Vero will be available in the US and Canada in November starting at $699.99 and the Acer TravelMate Vero will be available in January starting at $899.99. Acer also outlined a series of antimicrobial products, including a series of laptops, monitors, and keyboards and mice. And they even launched an eco-shell jacket for travelers made from the extracts of spent coffee grounds. Pretty interesting. And continuing on that category, they include the Acer Enduro Urban N3 laptop and Enduro Urban T3 tablet, the Acer Travelmate Spin 4, which is a business antimicrobial convertible laptop that will be available in North America in January starting at $1,099.99. Speaking of eco-friendly devices, or well, more eco-friendly I guess is a better term, Lance Olenoff shared a pretty cool mouse that was released by Microsoft and it is made with 20% ocean recovered plastic waste. Funny enough, I also saw an older article that was recommended to me when reading ZDNet this week about how Apple should stop promoting their eco-friendliness. So <laughs> I'm not sure if it's kind of one rule for them, another rule for Apple, but maybe it's just the history that Apple has had, particularly with that Panorama documentary a few years ago. Swings and roundabouts, I guess. 
Reuters reported this week that a questionnaire was sent to Microsoft Teams competitors as part of the European Commission investigation that is focusing on the period of 2016 to 2021 and Slack's claim that Teams being included with Office 365 infringed against the anti-competition laws. Not mentioned in the article, which I would think should be included in the investigation going forward at least, is the fact that Teams is now in the OS from Windows 11. That seems almost as egregious as it being bundled with Office 365, which is what Slack's original complaint was about. It is also of interest that since the claim by Slack, that company was acquired by Salesforce, but the investigation rages on. And I guess I don't know if it's the same way that in a civil case within a lower court, now, if someone doesn't want to pursue charges, it could be dropped. But I guess once it gets to like the European Commission and they're investigating, they could potentially just take the case forward themselves. And certainly they've reached out to other competitors, not just Slack, to get their input. So this does seem to be something they're going to pursue. I guess we'll wait and see what comes of it. Also policy and legal related, the US, Australia and Europe are cooking up some changes that could be coming in the near future or are coming as of this week. BleepyComputer.com reports that the EU is drafting legislation that could soon end the practice of individuals registering domains anonymously on the continent. Personally, I love this. This could help tackle some of the sinister misinformation campaigners on social media with those, you know, bogus, you know, Patriot hyperlinks and freedom websites and all that junk that you find in their bios and that they share in um, tweets on viral threads. I really hope this one does get through the grinder and actually makes it into law, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. For Australia's part, Australia has announced the Australian government's ransomware action plan, which is a set of new measures the country will adopt in an attempt to tackle the rising threat. LeapingComputer.com reports that the highlights of the new ransomware action plan include the formation of a multi-agency task force named Operation Orcus, led by the Australian Federal Police, the introduction of a mandatory ransomware incident reporting clause for all victimized entities, the establishment of awareness raising programs for businesses of all sizes, the introduction of harsher punishments for cyber extortionists and ransomware actors based in the country. The plan also includes to be more active in calling out states that facilitate ransomware attacks or provide safe havens to cyber criminals. Well, we all know who they're talking about there. And also to actively track and intercept cryptocurrency transactions that have confirmed links to ransomware operations or other cyber crimes. The report suggests there's an investment of about $121 million, with roughly half of that going to employing an additional 100 Australian federal police. The new task force on the police will undertake the role of identifying, investigating, and targeting cyber criminals. And a really interesting aspect of this new policy change, the new powers will allow law enforcement to delete data stolen during ransomware attacks and stored on servers operated by the attackers for use in double extortion schemes. 
It said by deleting the data, law enforcement hopes to prevent potential data breaches if a victim does not pay the ransom. So not just thinking about the actual act of the encryption and decryption, but also what happens to the data afterwards. Interesting. And on the U.S. side of the house, Ars Technica reports that federal contractors will be sued if they fail to report a cyber attack or data breach. This is part of a newly introduced civil cyber fraud initiative that will leverage their existing False Claims Act to pursue contractors and grant recipients involved in what the Department of Justice calls cybersecurity fraud to the full extent of that law. Usually the False Claims Act is used by the government to tackle civil lawsuits over false claims made in relation to federal funds and property connected with government programs. So it seems like it's all go in the fourth quarter, I guess. Just a few quick hit stories this week to make up for last week's really long episode. But Sysmon for Linux is finally here. Get it now on the Sysinternals GitHub repository. A preview version of the first ever Windows subsystem for Linux app is now available in the Windows Store for Windows 11. So it was already available before, but now it's a preview of an actual app available in the store. Congrats to Stefan Digmans for winning the Best Background category in the Best Home Office Awards and for winning a $250 Amazon gift card. I look forward to seeing the future winners too. And also, by the way, nice background. I really like the red brick. You should check it out if you're listening to an audio-only version of the podcast. You'll be able to see it in the YouTube edition of episode 198, which you'll find on 5bytespodcast.com under the YouTube column. And now for this episode, some hot jobs. The hot jobs this week are courtesy of Coffee Cup Solutions, who are looking for a third-line Citrix technical specialist and a technical consultant with parentheses Citrix and Azure, so a consultant in Citrix and Azure. So starting with the Citrix technical specialist role, they're looking for someone with four to five years experience. The salary is 30,000 to 48,000 pounds per year plus monthly on-call bonus. And the role is split between working from home and in their office located in Wokingham, Berkshire. As you might expect, excellent communication and documentation skills are critical and experience supporting Citrix solutions is a must, including experience managing and maintaining Citrix technologies, understanding of SLAs and change management, and responsibilities include proactive incident management, proactive maintenance, patching and updating Citrix infrastructure, and working with their consulting team to deliver projects. As you might expect, some of the key technology requirements would be Citrix virtual apps and desktops, both Citrix cloud and on-premises deployments, Citrix ADC, supporting technologies such as PVS and WEM, but also desirable technologies include Azure virtual desktop, Citrix endpoint management, and Citrix content collaboration too. Some of the benefits include private medical insurance and work from home. The technical consultant role requires five plus years experience. It pays 45,000 to 60,000 pounds per year plus monthly on-call bonus. 
Similarly, you'll primarily work from your home base, but will require some travel to the Wokingham office. Excellent communication skills are a must, and experience documenting solution designs is a must too. Should also have experience in performing assessment of customer requirements and transforming these into solution designs. Extensive hands-on experience in implementing Citrix solutions. Strong design and implementing documentation skills and good understanding of networking and security principles. A requirement is Citrix virtual apps and desktop. Again, both Citrix Cloud and on-prem, Citrix ADC, supporting technologies like PVS and WEM. Also desirable is AVD, Citrix endpoint management, and Citrix content collaboration. Benefits for this role include working from home as well, but also company pension and private medical insurance. If you'd like to apply for either of those roles, I will share links with this episode for the application, and you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 198. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. This week I saw a blog by Brian Posse on fixing stubborn Windows time sync issues, which is timely because clocks are about to change again. But also, oddly enough, over the last two years while I was working at a company based in Arizona where the time zone shouldn't change, time zone settings changing was a problem I experienced. At the time, I used control of script-based actions to identify and help correct the issue on some servers, but then also some servers required a reboot. So very interesting to read that this is not just a problem that I encountered and others have encountered too, and also what some of the recommended solutions are. Katie Nicholson had a great blog post on Azure AD and Windows Hello single sign-on to on-premises resources. So I've actually presented a couple of sessions over the last two weeks, one on app delivery and another on Azure AD only environments. And having read Katie's blog, I realized that I didn't even talk about this in the actual session on, on Azure Active Directory only but did when I was talking about app delivery, which seems ass backwards. Katie's blog post is excellent, so be sure to check it out. And it gave me some food for thought for my upcoming session on the Cloud PC Business Edition desktop that I'm doing in November. So thanks very much, Katie. And thanks for the reminder and helping me steer myself correctly in the next session that I do. Martin Thurkelson shared a great blog post on how to create Citrix images using Azure DevOps and publish them to Citrix Cloud via the REST API. So it seems like REST APIs have been becoming a huge thing, not even recently, it's kind of been over the last five years or, you know, I'm not a day-to-day developer, maybe it's been even longer than that, but I've just been noticing a lot of vendors in the EUC space uh, supporting REST APIs over the last five years. So cool to see that someone has examples of actually practically using the REST API for something meaningful. So check that blog post out. CitrixGuyBlog.com had an interesting article on how to deploy Microsoft remote desktop session hosts with PVS. So I was kind of like, ooh, what does this mean? Because, I mean, technically, your Citrix VDAs are sitting on top of Microsoft remote desktop session hosts in a way. Um, but what he actually means is you could use PVS for deploying and provisioning remote desktop session hosts in an RDS environment. And he has a PowerShell script that can help you automate 
uh, some of that. It's not something that I've run into before, but I actually did work in an environment where there was an acquisition of a company that used RDS while the parent company used Citrix PVS. So a quick way of managing those machines without having to migrate them onto uh, Citrix VDAs could have been to manage them with Citrix PVS and keep them as RDS. So interesting. Jel Virget had a blog post on reverse engineering and decrypting CyberArk Vault credential files. I found this particularly interesting because CyberArk is somewhat of a holy grail for um, secure password management and password rotation and all that stuff. Um, pain in the butt to have it over you when you're an admin and you're trying to work and it's rotating your passwords. But I think the juice is worth the squeeze. But here, this blog post is very, very interesting and somewhat worrying reading. Aaron Parker shared a really cool looking tool that he found for creating bootable Windows 11 media and it's called the Universal Media Creation Tool Wrapper Script and it was created by Aveo and it's on the Aveo GitHub repository. Cool stuff. I own Papaviki. I hope I pronounced your name right, buddy, because I really like everything you do. But he added a get Windows 11 compatibility script to his Microsoft Endpoint Configuration Management Tools on his GitHub repository. So check out the Config Manager Hub repository for more. And finally, I actually got to take part in a different podcast this week, the Upload Podcast. I was together with my buddies Jeff Johnson, Tom Fenton, and Trenton Ty, and we just did a really quick fire episode talking about what happened at VMworld and some of our personal highlights. So I know last week a common comment was the episode was too long, my episode covering the VMworld announcements. I packed too much into it, which, yeah, I completely agree. But if you manage to get through it and you want to hear a very quick fire, easy to listen to edition of a VMworld podcast, only cherry picking what we found particularly interesting, check out the upload podcast and I'll share that with this episode. That's it for another episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.